This is Sarah Hopeful and Emily Morris with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Happy Election Day. As of 4 p.m. this evening, 102,706 ballots have been counted just in the city of Madison. Polls close at 8 p.m. If you're in line by 8 p.m., stay in line and you'll still be able to vote. We'll have much more on today's races in just a few minutes. But first, here are more of tonight's headlines. According to the Associated Press, Wisconsin resident Michael A. Yaker has been charged in federal court with threatening Governor Tony Evers. An affidavit released on Monday charges Yaker with sending emails and posting Facebook messages threatening the governor. A Dane County detective recognized the originating email as Yaker's due to a long string of threat investigations, which began in 2010. A court file showed a warrant has been issued for Yaker. A judge in Waukesha County denied a Republican lawmaker's request to sequester military ballots in Wisconsin, WPR reports. The decision responds to a lawsuit filed by Representative Janelle Branchin of Menominee Falls last Friday, asking state election officials to block the immediate counting of military absentee or mail-in ballots in this week's election. The lawsuit comes after the former deputy director of Milwaukee's Election Commission, Kimberly Zapata, allegedly requested fraudulent military absentee ballots and sent them to Representative Branchin's home. Zapata was fired from her post and was later charged with election fraud and misconduct in public office. Judge Michael Maxwell ruled that it was inappropriate for the court to sequester ballots, but claimed the Election Commission should do more to make sure municipal clerks are complying with state law regarding military voters. Military ballots make up an average of 0.07% of total ballots requested in each election. After a divisive day of deliberation, the Dane County Board of Supervisors adopted its 2023 operating budget in a 24-13 vote on Monday evening. The Cap Times reports that the budget includes a scaled-down version of the long-stalled jail project, an amendment proposed by Board Chair Patrick Miles. The budget amendment instructs the county's architect to remove plans for a sixth floor and to scale back the jail design initially passed in March. It also included a $500,000 investment in criminal justice reform. Madison-based biomedical company Exact Sciences is laying off 5% of its workforce, Channel 3000 reports. Nearly 350 employees, 250 of whom work in Wisconsin, will lose their jobs across divisions and at varying levels. The announcement follows an initial wave of layoffs first announced in May of this year when 230 positions were cut. The company explained that the impacts of inflation, market volatility, and company restructuring were determining factors. Exact Sciences maintains that they are still on track to build a new 266,000-square-foot research and development facility on its Madison campus. The $350 million investment announced in January is expected to create 1,300 new jobs. Channel 3000 reports that cases of RSV, or respiratory syncytial virus, continue to rise across the state. The virus usually causes mild, cold-like symptoms, but can be particularly dangerous for children 18 months and younger who may suffer impaired breathing and risk developing pneumonia. In Madison, RSV cases are four times higher than they were last fall. At the American Family Children's Hospital, RSV accounts for 10% of all patients. While many people can recover from the virus at home, doctors recommend consulting a primary care physician about treatment and seeking emergency services when infants struggle to breathe. And that's it for headlines at the end of 
All early voting yesterday, over 54,000 voters in the city of Madison and 719,000 in the state of Wisconsin had submitted an absentee ballot. Today, of course, is the big day, Election Day, after which the campaign ads and door knocking come to an end. As the time ticks down to find out the close races for Wisconsin governor, Congress, and a slate of statewide and local elections, we turn the airwaves back to you. Thousands of voters across Madison made their way to the polling location to do their part in casting their ballot on Election Day. And in keeping with WRT tradition on Election Day, our crew of reporters fanned out to polls across the city earlier this morning, asking voters their thoughts on this crucial election. Here's WRT reporters Nate Carlin, Rochelle Wilson, Aaron Ashley, Andy Barrow, and producer Nate Buggy Hout. Great to be here uh, in Maple Bluff, voting, participating in our democracy, Kathy and I. Stand right next to you. Yeah. <laughs> Kathy and I just uh, finished our voting and uh, really looking forward to a good outcome today. That was Governor Tony Evers turning in his ballot at the Maple Bluff Village Center this morning as he joins thousands of other Wisconsinites in casting their ballot today. And yes, he did vote for himself. Polls opened at 7 a.m. across the state and the WORT news crew traveled to polling places across Madison today to talk with voters. I began at the Maple Bluff Village Center where Governor Evers took a few questions after casting his ballot. Are you concerned at all that it won't be over tomorrow? Not really. I, yeah, because, because even if it's not over tomorrow, it will be over at some point in time. You know, I know there's a lot, there's a, there's an increase in the number of uh, uh, absentee ballots uh, as compared to 2018. So I'm assuming it's going to take a while. Uh, it could take into to tomorrow, but at at the end of the day, we will we will have a we'll have a, a answer from the people of Wisconsin. I'm sure at the minimum sometime tomorrow. I think it'll be sometime this evening or early in the morning. But that's no concern. That's what we expect. It's a close race. When asked about the high projected voter turnout, I think that's great. I mean, uh, I, we've we, I've heard the same things, and, uh, and uh, as I said before, the absentee balloting looked uh, looked heavier than it did in 2018. I've heard about uh, you know people standing in lines all across the state. So I, I think it's uh, I think it's a good. Well, first of all, it's good for democracy. You know, when when democracy has been uh, challenged, uh, and you know the way we 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 talk about our democracy and, and deal with it is by voting. And if we have lots of people voting, that's that's a good thing for for uh, for our democracy. And so I, I'm hopeful. I mean, if you think about all the frankly crap that uh, some of the local folks have taken over the last couple of years of local people that you know are friends and neighbors who are running uh, polling places all across the state, all the grief that they've taken, and uh, it's I think people are saying. We trust our system, we're gonna vote, and we're gonna make it happen. So that gives me great pleasure. I hope we have the largest turnout ever. Do I think that helps us? Yes, but more importantly, it helps the people inside that they get the idea that Gableman is wrong and, uh, and, and what they've been doing is right. But what about the other thousands of Madison voters? What did they think about today's election? This is Aaron Ashley with WORT News, checking in just outside the Meadow Ridge Neighborhood Library in Madison, Wisconsin. Just inside, the polling stations are filled with people ready to cast their ballot. All right, and now, would you mind telling us your name? Uh, this is Chris. And um, 
So what what were the main things that brought you out to vote today? Um, to tell you the truth, I wanted to see Ron Johnson out of office. Um, and then also there was a mention of uh, maybe legalizing marijuana, taxing it. That sounds pretty cool. And um, the whole abortion thing is messed up in Wisconsin right now, and I'd like to see that uh, brought back to its normal state, I'd like to say, uh, having access to abortion. This is Rochelle Wilson reporting from the Lakeview Library for WORT 89.9 FM Madison. We've been here for about an hour. It's a little after 9 o'clock, and the line has been pretty steady here at Lakeview Library. Got a lot of folks coming out to vote today. (laughs) Can I get your first name, please? James. James, what brought you out to vote today? Voting. (laughs) All right. What are some of the issues that are important to you? Um, I'm really not happy with... I'm really not happy with a lot of where our social things are going. I am a gay guy. I'm not really down for all the gender stuff that's been on, that's been going on. Um, I think somebody needs to put a foot on that. So I voted. I can't even say what I voted. You can. Oh, okay. So, I mean, I, I did a split ballot. Okay. Um, I, kind of the opposite of what usually happens. I did social Republican, and I tried to do, like, financial things Democrat. Okay. Because... The Democrats have lost their damn minds when it comes to social things, and the Republicans have lost their damn minds when it comes to money things. <laughs> so I tried to give myself a little party in the middle. Um, but yeah, anywho. All right. Is there anything else you'd like to share about the election? No. All right. That you should vote. Um, if you have an opinion, you should vote. Great. That's all. Thank you, James. Have a good day. So yeah, can you, uh, what's, what's your name? My name is Pete LeMay, L-E-M-A-Y. I'm the chief inspector at Ward 32. All right, can you give us a little bit about uh, what does the chief inspector do? Chief inspector is the person who is ultimately responsible for all the paperwork and managing all the election officials. Uh, when did your job like start getting ready for this election? Um, probably four months ago when they notified me that I was chief inspector again. I've been doing chief inspector for five or six years. And there's preparation all year round, believe it or not, there's always videos and information to watch and, and prepare for. Uh, can you give us a little idea of what that preparation looks like? like what, what, are you, what are you doing? Um, there are webinars to teach us any changes in the law, because the law has changed numerous times in the last couple of years. There's, I can't remember all of, all of the stuff that we do day to day, so there's always books that I can look back at, websites. The city has a, a, a learning website where you can go back and go over processes to make sure that you're following the right process. You don't encounter the same thing every election, and so you have to be able to know where to find the information you need. And what's the last week been like getting ready for, for <laughs> this one? <laughs> it's funny because I work a full-time job, and it's a fairly physical job that keeps me busy, and I come home and I'm tired, and my mind immediately comes to the election. I have to contact all of my election workers. I have to make sure that the venue is going to be ready. Um, I start prepping my paperwork, because I have things beyond what the city supplies. I bring my own things to help me get through the day for my organization. Um, Every night there has been something that I have done to help prepare for today, mainly because I don't feel I'm organized enough without all of this extra stuff that I do. So what are some of the issues that you would have to handle or run into on on election day? Issues run everything from the fact that when we opened our doors this morning we had 10 people waiting to vote. 
We had left the door unlocked when, as we came in. We actually had a person walk in at 6.30 who wanted to vote right away. We had an observer come in at 6.30 who wanted to start observing. Fortunately, the observer's not allowed till 7 a.m., so she had to wait out here in the library area, and the other gentleman waited here, and then we locked the door to make sure that nobody else came in. Um, I've never had this much turnout this early in the day, and I was concerned that we would not be prepared, but my election crew stepped up. We were ready to go at 7 a.m., and we were ready to start handling. We're over 250 voters already just after 9 a.m., and for this voting place, that's amazing. Yeah, what's, what's a, a daily turnout like here? They recently combined this polling place. There were two wards that were combined into one, mostly. Um, it went from, I went from managing a 900-person ward to a 1,900-person ward. It's been very obviously busier since they combined the two. But it was often very slow. The April election this year, we had 45% turnout, but it was spread out over the day. It was very relaxed. A lot of absentee ballots, as always, since the pandemic. But you could process it. This morning, when I was thinking we'd be fully processing absentee ballots, we were, had people in line. And so absentee ballots had to be kind of paused because we needed the people to process people in line. So uh, what do you guys do after the polls close? What's like the, the wrap-up of the day look like? The wrap-up of the day, some of, some of the people will be closing up the equipment. I and one other person will be running the tabulator to count out the thing. We have to go through all of the ballots because we have two different write-in candidates. We have to find any ballots that have the write-in candidates. And then f because they're written in, they're not counted on the tabulator as other than a write-in candidate. We have to find out what they say. Um, and tabulate that, gather it all together, send in the results through the tabulator, with, which has a modem which only sends out, doesn't receive anything, only sends out, and then package it all up and make it secure for pickup tomorrow. Great. Uh, anything else about the process that I haven't asked about that's interesting or you want to share? There are so many checks and balances. We had a gentleman who wanted to drop off his own ballot. He didn't have a witness signature. So in order for him to vote, I can't accept his absentee because I had not touched it yet. He could tear his absentee ballot in half, put it in his own pocket to dispose of later, and he could vote in person and his vote still counts. If he had just handed me that ballot, once I accept it, I can't hand it back to him to tear. So that we allowed him to vote. We are here to help every person vote. That's what this is about. Okay. Fantastic. My name is Zachary. So what brought you out to vote today? Is this your first time voting? This is not my first time voting. It is my first time voting in Wisconsin. Uh, I have been a lifelong resident of Illinois. So um, given that in the past, as I've observed, Illinois has usually voted more democratically and the outcomes have been more democratic. So as Wisconsin tends to sit on the line a little bit more, I think my vote would be more valuable in this state for what I want to happen, I guess. And what are you hoping for as far as the outcomes of this election? I, to speak to the previous interview, um, I definitely, as I'm a male, I don't really think it is within our rights or ability to be commenting on something such as the overturning of Roe v. Wade or the statute that would be banning abortion. So I'm just hoping for the outcome that the power is put into the woman's hands in that regard. 
Um, I saw a uh, question on there about marijuana legalization and the expunging of um, nonviolent convictions related to small marijuana charges. And I think I'm hoping for that outcome to happen. I would very much like to see all of those things expunged and the legalization occur because I think there is lots of proactive research and economic benefits to legalizing. Yeah, uh, I'm Elijah. Okay, Elijah. Sydney. Uh, I just felt like, you know, this was a civic, civic duty. But, but is this your first time voting? Yeah. Very first time voting. Very uh, exciting. That is exciting. Yeah, Congratulations. for sure. Appreciate it. Um, I came out to vote because we in a swing state, um, so it feels like our vote actually really counts here. <laughs> um, yeah, and like elections do get lost because of like a couple percentage, so we need to edge it out because I think we're like the lowest demographic for voting. Is there a particular outcome that you're hoping for tonight? I'm hoping that all the questions that we voted on, you know, I hope that the things happen and I hope that people keep showing up to vote and that poll workers, you know, keep doing their thing because they're really helpful. Yep, yep. I wonder if you have anything that you'd like to say to folks at home. Go out there and vote. You still got time to. Um, go out there and vote. Um, it's really important. Uh, make a plan to. And even if like you feel like your voice doesn't matter, it does. And yeah, um, it's definitely like something that was quick and easy for us, but we know it might be different for other people. So just keep the greater goal like in your mind and just stay in line. Yeah, Jenna Wilson. Jenna? Yes. Um, so, uh, what brought you out to vote today? Um, I have not voted before. I've just turned 19 in June, so I haven't really voted. Um, and I always, you know, you get the jitters because you're kind of nervous. I went earlier with my friend to vote where she was voting. Um, I definitely thought it was going to be a lot scarier than it like actually was, or a lot busier, but it turned out well. fabulous. Yeah. And um, is there a particular uh, outcome that you're hoping for? Um, I voted mainly, actually all Democratic, um, so, yeah, yeah, that's, that's... Fabulous. And is yes. there anything else that you, um, wanted to say to folks at home? Um, besides, like, if you can vote, you definitely should. Then, uh, what's your what's your name? Uh, Joe McCallis. All right, and Joe, we're looking at a big table of baked goods here. Uh, what what are you doing out here? Uh, we are raising some funds with a bake sale for the parent teacher group for the Lapham and Marquette schools. And uh, the the proceeds, I see that it's a uh, uh, no set price donations accepted. Uh, where where do the uh, donations go? Uh, all to our parent teacher group. So um, a lot of that money funds some after school programs and helps kind of support. You know, if teachers need supplies in the classrooms or things that are going on in the school, it gives us a way to make sure that there's a little bit of money to take care of that. Um, so yeah, so it's a great way to make sure that we keep all the other things that go into a school funded and um, I don't just kind of connect with our community that way too. 
and this is a pretty ingenious place to be set up for a, a, a bake sale. Tell me, uh, tell me about that. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how long it goes back. At least since I've moved in the neighborhood in 2013, there's been a bake sale uh, at elections, uh, hiatus during the pandemic, but it's really great to have this back. Um, and for me, you know, as a voter before I was a parent here, it was really this nice kind of connection between the school and the neighborhood. And, and so I'm just happy to be kind of on this side of the table because I always really loved having this as part of my voting experience. Just any, any parting thoughts with me here? Uh, I'm just very happy that, to see our community kind of coming into community spaces. And, uh, you know, you said it's donation-based, and that's it brings out the best in people where they can give whatever they want, and it's actually way more than they need to. So I'm just, I don't know, proud of my community, and it's exciting to see everyone out together like this. And uh, what's your name? Casey. And Casey, why are, uh, why are you out here voting today? Ooh, because I ha couldn't get here soon enough. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And uh, what, what sort of results do you hope to see tonight? Uh, the right one. <laughs> any, any final thoughts? Um, it was great to be in there. Kind of things like usual a little bit with the bake sale. I was going to ask, did you pick anything up? Yes. Okay. Yeah, chocolate cookies beautiful for the teachers <laughs> cool and uh what are your guys names uh douglas Catherine. uh and what are you guys uh why are you guys out here voting today uh, it's a slightly important election uh i would be here if i had to drag myself here yeah well i agree with that but i the easiest answer for me is i always vote yeah so we always vote we always vote so. and uh what sort of results do you guys uh hope to see here tonight a lot of people voting that's a good yeah, sign a big and turnout and uh, go ahead. I don't think you can expect anything. You can't. We we don't know. This is a whole new, uh, and the the way that they count votes usually when they do polls and so forth, it's all changed. So I think we just have to wait and see. I'm expecting maybe by next Tuesday we'll know what happened. Uh, final question: What did you guys pick up from the bake sale in there? Oh, thumbprint uh. cookies. Ooh. Yes, got to be good. Got chocolate in them, right? Yeah, it's always good. Got to be good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Can I get your first name, please? Rennett. And yours? Tabitha. All right, Rennett, why did you come out to vote today? I'm a citizen of this nation, <laughs> so that's my duty to do, so I'm here to fulfill my duty. <laughs> every Yeah, every vote counts, and it's so important for us to not just go out and tell the, you know, do whatever um, to get our <laughs> opinions out, but voting is the most important way to, to get your, your opinion. <laughs> That's right. Well, so what are some of the issues that matter to you most this year? Um, family and to make sure that the, the Institute of Family is protected and, um, and it's preserved and not necessarily have, um, have outso uh, outside information or other things come and infiltrate my family and how I view my family because I think my family is important for myself and especially for each person's family is important for them and I don't um, want somebody else's opinion to come and infiltrate my family. So uh, I'm I'm for less government and you know no big government. This nation is is uh, one of the kind in this world um, and is found on uh, the level of independence that we have and freedom we have. Uh, so that is the biggest thing, right? It is not enough to fight for freedom. It is important to live in freedom. Um, so how we voice that out becomes very critical. And being that this is a, um, 
a very democratic process, meaning citizens can come and voice their uh, voice their opinions as to what they think is their version of freedom means. So it is important for everyone, be it whichever side they are in, to come and record that so that right decision can be made. That's great. Is this your child? Yeah. <laughs> How do you feel about your parents voting? Good. Are you going to vote someday? Yes. <laughs> All right. We love to hear that. Is there anything else you'd like to share? I said, get out and vote. <laughs> and get your voice heard. Yeah, like he said, it's the greatest nation. And it's, it's important for us to come and ma maintain it that way. All right. Great. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Polls close at 8 p.m. tonight. As long as you are in line by 8, you will be able to vote after polls close, so stay in line. Tonight's results will be unofficial. If you've voted with a provisional ballot, you have until Friday at 4 p.m. to return to the city clerk's office with your paperwork. Otherwise, your vote will not be counted. For up-to-date election information throughout this evening, follow us on Twitter at Wart News. Reporting for WORT News. This is Rochelle Wilson reporting from the east side for WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. Reporting for WORT, this is Nate Carlin. Reporting for WORT, this has been Andy Barrow. Reporting from the south side, I'm Aaron Ashley. And I'm Nate Wuggiehout. The time is now 6.32 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. We're just an hour and a half away from polls closing. Polls close at 8 p.m. sharp, but if you're in line by 8 p.m., you'll still be able to vote after 8 p.m. Every Tuesday, we check in with the editorial staff over at the Daily Cardinal, one of UW-Madison's student newspapers, to learn the latest news from campus. This week, Cardinal Call producer Hope Carnop is joined by state news editor Tyler Katzenberger to talk about the different candidates who have visited the campus this year and what effect they may have on student voters heading to the polls. So obviously, these candidates know that getting students to turn out and getting students to turn out for them could make or break their campaign. Hello and welcome to the Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm producer Hope Carnup, joined today by state news editor Tyler Katzenberger to recap the Cardinals' election coverage, especially voting on campus and how candidates have appealed to college-age voters. Thank you so much for joining us, Tyler. All right, thanks for having me. Let's start with some of the Democrats that have visited campus in recent days. Who are they campaigning for and what have been some of the issues that they've brought up? Yeah, great question. There's been a ton of kind of star power on campus the last few days and if you're a student that's been walking around chances are you might have just bumped into somebody kind of famous um we've seen both bernie sanders and elizabeth warren on campus campaigning for mandela barnes warren was actually in 1111 or sorry not 1111 but 3650 humanities campaigning for uh, mandela barnes and tony evers in a get out the vote event um another event again with Sanders, was actually at the Orpheum on Friday night. Um, kind of a big ticket item there. And yeah, so they've really descended on Madison to try to support both Evers, but especially Barnes, who was lagging about five points behind in Marquette polling in October. Um, he's since kind of closed that gap. 
um, to, I believe it was just two points behind Johnson. So the race is getting close, as you can expect from Wisconsin politics. But yeah, I think there have been a lot more Democratic big names. And I think a fun one actually was LeVar Burton was here on Friday um, at Gray's campaigning for Mandela Barnes. Republican candidates Tim Michaels and Eric Tony also came to campus for an event. Can you give us a recap of that? Yeah, so Tim Michaels and Eric Tony both visited campus on October 25th. Uh, they met with college Republicans. Both of them gave speeches to college Republicans. And then they stuck around for a Q&A. We had some Cardinal reporters there to talk to Tim Michaels and Eric Tony about a few different issues, including abortion access, education funding. Yeah, it was it was a nice event. And honestly, it sounded like a great way for students to get engaged. What do you think these various campaign stops at UW-Madison say about the power of the youth vote, especially in very close races? I think all the attention on campus says that candidates know the power of the youth vote. I think my like favorite statistic to bring up is that the last few elections in Wisconsin, um, the 2016 election, the 2020 election, and the 2018 election, were all decided by under 30,000 votes. And for context, over 40,000 students are on the UW-Madison campus, which mathematically means that UW could be the decider of the election in a sense. So I think that should show you just how much power students have, that just in sheer numbers, you might be able to influence the outcome of, of an election. So obviously these candidates know that getting students to turn out and getting students to turn out for them could make or break their campaign. What are some of the issues that have come up in this election cycle or not come up that affect college students and might influence their motivation to vote? The biggest one is obviously abortion policy. Um, Democrats have really made that a defining cornerstone of their campaign. Uh, Meanwhile, Republicans have campaigned on crime and education. But as far as education, we've seen a lot about K through 12 education. But higher education has been oddly missing on the campaign trail. Um, Tony Evers has has talked about it, and obviously Tony Evers has been a pretty big proponent of funding the UW system, both in his time as governor and as a candidate. Tim Michaels hasn't really put out much of a plan for higher education. In fact, if you go to his website and go to his blueprints, you're really going to find minimal mention of higher education. Um, His lieutenant governor candidate, Roger Roth, has been a pretty big proponent of slimming down UW. Um, So that's really all we know, though, from the Republican side. Um, I've reached out to Tim Michaels' campaign before to try to get answers on higher education and never heard back. What has the atmosphere been like around campus as election season gets underway, specifically the options that have been available to students for registration and early voting? It's been electric. Um, I just this morning, actually, I was sitting in my living room and had uh, two students come knock on my door canvassing for Barnes. Um, I've never actually had somebody knock on my door canvassing before. So that was definitely like a cool experience, I think, just knowing that people are out there campaigning for candidates they like. But that's been the whole energy. I mean, you've seen people talking about early voting in just about every campus space. Um, Reminders to vote are coming in from all over nearly every club. It feels like a full-on mobilization of students out to the polls. Um, And obviously, we've had a really great civic engagement environment. And I can't confirm this, but from Badger's vote officials, it sounds like UW may actually be leading um, the University of Minnesota in um, like the Big Ten Voter Project, which is 
really huge. Um, basically, all the Big Ten schools compete for um, like voter outreach, voter engagement, and UW always does really well, but usually behind Minnesota. So it sounds like we're really doing great this year. But obviously, we won't know final turnout numbers until students go to the polls on Tuesday. Let's talk about some of the Cardinals' other election coverage. So the Cardinal attended a rally in Milwaukee with Evers, Barnes, and former President Barack Obama. What were some of the takeaways from that event? That was another electric event. That's kind of in the theme of this campaign season. But yeah, at that event, um, you had thousands of people crammed in to see former President Barack Obama. Uh, it was clear that, at least for Democratic voters, Obama is still very beloved um, he was there campaigning, obviously, for Evers, Barnes, and a ton of other down-ballot races, including Lieutenant Governor Sarah Rodriguez um, and including Attorney General Josh Call. That that event overall, it was very, like I said, very energetic. It was just kind of like a conjuring of democratic energy. And there was a huge focus on replicating the energy around Barack Obama's 2008 campaign. There were a lot of callbacks to that campaign from candidates talking on stage. And that really seemed to be Democrats' focus was trying to recapture that energy. Um, again, I'm going to say the polls have been not great for Democrats nationwide. Wisconsin's been a little bit closer. But it seems like Democrats know that they're a little bit down in the polls and that they're going to have to pull out some star-studded energy to crawl back up. You went to interview a class of high school students, some of whom might not even be able to vote yet in Sauk County. What did you learn from that class? That was a really rewarding experience. Um, basically, the way it happened is I was going to write a story on Sauk County. Um, for people who don't know, Sauk County is a bellwether in Wisconsin, which means, at least in the last few elections, the way that Sauk County votes tends to be the way the rest of the state votes, which makes it a really important county to watch on election night. Uh, so I wanted to write a story about it, but I wasn't sure where to go with it until I texted um, actually a former AP government teacher of one of our writers. Um, and we talked a little bit about his class. And there was this fun quirk that his class also tends to be a little bit of, of a bellwether in elections. Um, his class had voted for um, Trump in 2016 and Biden in 2020. And so I'm like, huh, that's really interesting. And talked to him more about his class. And I decided to pop up there last Wednesday to just talk with some students. And what I learned is that the way students talk to each other in that class is a lot more civil um, and respectful and kind, really, than a lot of the political discourse we see uh, in everyday life between adults and especially between political candidates. Um, and so I asked the class about what they do to stay civil and stay respectful. Um, they take turns. They don't call each other out by name. Um, they maintain decorum, which is, again, just generally being calm and being respectful in debates. And I think the biggest takeaway from that that they had was that every voice matters in a debate and that if you're not listening for other voices, even those that don't agree with you, you're probably missing out on some pretty important info that could help make better policy. It was kind of nuts how students who have never actually cast a vote before seem to have debate skills and um, just general interpersonal skills that beat out a lot of the rhetoric we're seeing on TV from candidates. Is there anything else you'd like to add about our election coverage so far and what's coming up? Yeah, I just want to say, once again, it has been electric. I've had tons and tons of writers and reporters, I think, covering people that 
they probably never thought they would cover. I covered Barack Obama. I never thought I would cover Barack Obama in college. It's all around been a pretty rewarding and pretty engaging experience for so much of the state news team. Um, and I hope that for students on campus, that having these figures come to campus, having people try to interact with students directly um, has been an experience that makes them feel like part of a democracy. Thank you so much, Tyler, for coming on the show and all of your help with our coverage so far. Thank you. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Find our complete election coverage, plus more news and stories, at dailycardinal.com. This has been the Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison. This week on Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg gets into the patriotic spirit by talking about the bald eagles that have come through the center this year. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment and today I wanted to talk about bald eagles because we are now officially at a record for our wildlife center of bald eagle intake for a single year. So not only, if you've heard before, are we at a highest intake of foxes as well, uh, we now have 22 bald eagles that have been admitted this year. Our highest year on record before 2022 was actually back in 2018, where we had 21 eagles. And this year, 22, the lowest year was three eagles, and that's in 2014 and 2015. In total, since 2014, we've admitted 119 eagles to our Wildlife Rehabilitation Center. And a lot of those are adults, some are juveniles, but when I was looking at the actual numbers, it looks like 72 of those birds were adults. Eight of them were little fledglings, two of them were hatchlings, and 37 of them are what we would consider juvenile. Now, juvenile is a weird term. It's not one that we typically use for all of our bird age stages. You know, we think of nestlings as being the little tiny itty bitties that hatch right from their their eggs, so eaglets in this case. Fledging would mean that they're to the point where they've grown most of their feathers and they're getting close to the departure from the nest. That's their fledgling stage. But then when we're talking about juveniles, that's going to be after they're 14 weeks old at least. And those are ones where they are now departured the nest. They have flown. They're probably trying to figure out what prey items are. It's kind of a neat thing, but juveniles really for us, for eagles, typically encompasses year one to almost year five, because that's about how long it takes for them to get their adult plumage. So we have a juvenile that is currently in care, for example, and this bird was found on a roadside. It was down for about a week until it was able to be captured. And it's one of those situations where it was found just eating off of a deer carcass. So there was a food source nearby, but the bird must have been injured in some way where it spent so much time walking back and forth across a stretch of road that you could see the eagle's feces or their mutes just like in a straight line, just this bright white um, coloration over the road because it kept going back and forth to its food source because it was down. 
did end up having a coracoid fracture, which we are working with uh, with our veterinarians to figure out whether or not the bird can fly. But it's a young eagle, and it seems like it's a young eagle, a juvenile, maybe about two years old based on some plumage patterns that we can see in the feathers. So, you know, they continue to grow and develop after they fledge, and usually their mass is actually going to decrease a little bit because they get rid of the baby fat. They'll still have some skeletal growth, but then their flight feathers are emerging and then they're going to start to molt out. So your young bald eagle juvenile is going to be really dark brown and that feather structure is really, really dark until they've had a lot of sun exposure. And that's where those feathers actually start to lighten over time. And what's really cool about raptors is that they only molt a couple of feathers at a time in what we call molt waves, where you might have a set of three feathers that drop the first year. And those new feathers that come in are going to be a lot fresher looking, and they're actually going to be quite a bit darker than all of your other feathers that are surrounding them that are now lightened because of sun exposure. It really depends on the feather, but a lot of times you can see those differences in the feathers and make an inference as to what age this bird is. So the one bird we have in care at the moment, uh, we believe is a second year bird based on the differences in the coloration of the feathers. Now, I wanted to talk about bald eagles at the juvenile stage because this is the time of year where we're seeing a lot of juveniles that have dispersed. And that's something, if you don't know what dispersal is, it's, you know, they are at their nest site and then they move. You know, they have a really tough time actually after they have been born, they leave their natal area, which is the place that they're born, and they really don't interact with their parents as much after about 23 weeks of age. And there's this four to five year period where they are what Birds of North America writes very well is that it's a nomadic exploration. And so they are getting these new plumage patterns from juvenile to um, all the way up to their five-year-old age where it's called the definitive basic plumage. And it's really hard to figure out what an eagle does at that time unless you're tracking them. And there have been a lot of studies with uh, satellite telemetry or GPS to figure out how far eagles go from their natal site and where they're moving. But we see juveniles come through Wisconsin in all different areas, but especially along large bodies of water, rivers. We think of the Mississippi as being a really big migratory flyway. So we see them in just a lot of, of spots. So did you know that it actually, you know, some birds can just, they can go thousands and thousands of miles if they wanted to initially disperse. And it's hard to know exactly why they go that far. But on average, usually your male bald eagle is actually only going to be about 42 miles away from its natal site. And actually, I shouldn't even say only 42 miles. That's a pretty big distance for a bird, I would say. So there are a lot more eagles in the state of Wisconsin now than there ever were. And that has impacted their dispersal around the state because you might have an older pair of eagles that continue to come back year after year to that same nest site and then they have babies successfully but each time those babies have to fledge and then they go through their juvenile stage they're nomadic and they're moving and they're going about 40 miles away or so and they may or may not come back or they may continue to disperse year after year until they find their own spot and that can be really tough when you've got territorial disputes between eagles because the juveniles are going to probably be outcompeted by the adults they have survived they've made it this long and so we see injuries from eagles fighting with each other at times. We sometimes even see injuries from them during the mating period where they actually lock talons but accidentally injure themselves with puncture wounds. And even last year or two years ago, I believe we had some that actually had come down in their their aerial display, locked talons together, 
but had crash landed in a spot where they just got iced over because of the temperature and they weren't able to unlatch themselves and they were fully you know frozen wings frozen feathers it was it was pretty terrible but we were able to talk through the situation with the finder they were able to get themselves uh, shaken off unlocked and they were able to fly away successfully which is pretty rare sometimes but we also have not only territorial disputes that cause injuries but also just in general pushing those juveniles further and further away from a best food source can cause a lot of problems like emaciation like they're starving for example so we do see a good number of juvenile eagles that are are starving this particular bird we have in care was emaciated even though he had a deer carcass he was picking off of uh, it was also injured so i'm sure has a hard time finding food when you've got a fracture of the shoulder girdle but you know there's going to be a lot of fish that they would eat raccoons and deer and so you have to be able to find that food source and then the more eagles that are in an area they're going to be fighting and competing over that food source. So we see, again, birds from all different age ranges of bald eagles, from adults to juveniles. It seems like our center has seen more adults and we see typically injuries due to impacts with cars. Lead toxicity is a really big one. Avian influenza has been big this year for disease transmission and a number of other issues that crop up from time to time that are a little bit more rare. But Typically, it's going to be an animal that's debilitated because of some sort of human interaction, whether it's a car, a vehicle, a lead toxicity, something like that that they've picked up in the environment that unfortunately was just circumstantial. So that's a little bit about bald eagles, their juvenile stage, you know, uh, where they're going for those couple of years and, and et cetera. And honestly, they're just largely after opportunistic. So they're going to kind of go wherever there's local food availability and where the weather is nice and it could be year after year. So you never know where that eagle came from. So we really love and encourage that there are banding practices out there to track where those eagles are going. Check it out if you ever get the chance to research where eagles move on migration. There's some really great range maps out there. Check out bald eagles on the Birds of North America website through Cornell. There's just so much information out there and it's fascinating to learn about eagles. And we appreciate that we get to work with them so often, especially having 22 of them this year. So I bet we'll probably reach a few more by the end of the season because it is getting to that time of year where we admit more eagles uh, in this November, December time period. Uh, so we'll see what this year ends up being, but we're here to help. We are open for eagle rehabilitation. If you ever find an eagle or any other wild animal, give us a call at 608-287-3235. And thanks for listening on WORT. This has been Wildlife Weekly. It's now 6.54 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Good news, everyone. The Ice Cube team has made a major neutrino discovery. Wait, what's the Ice Cube team and what's a neutrino? Radio astronomy host Rourke Habegger breaks it all down. Welcome to Radio Astronomy. Last week, the Ice Cube collaboration led by professors and scientists at UW-Madison, announced they had identified a new neutrino source, the Galaxy M77, also known as NGC 1068. Okay, so that statement creates a lot more questions than it answers. What is the Ice Cube collaboration? What is NGC 1068? What's a neutrino? And why do I care? <laughs> so we'll start with the neutrino part. It might remind you of a neutron, which is a good connection to make. A neutrino is also electrically neutral and only interacts via the weak nuclear force and gravity. Electromagnetic forces don't impact them. 
The suffix eno is used here to literally mean small. So small neutron, neutrino. For a long time, scientists thought neutrinos actually had zero mass. Even today, the best we have is an upper limit on the mass. We know they're less massive than a 10 millionth of an electron's mass. In astrophysics, neutrinos provide a new way of learning about objects far away from us. They are a key part of the multi-messenger revolution. Instead of only relying on electromagnetic waves, also known as light or photons, we can use other messengers like neutrinos and gravitational waves. Because neutrinos don't interact electromagnetically, they can travel very far from where they are created without losing their energy. This provides an almost unperturbed view of high-energy astrophysical objects like supermassive black holes. Okay, so we got neutrino down. Moving on. The Ice Cube Collaboration is a group of hundreds of scientists around the world, all working together to detect neutrinos. The lack of interaction that makes neutrinos a great probe of places far away also makes them really hard to detect. We detect light because it interacts electromagnetically. A neutrino will most likely fly right through a mirror or a camera that we use in everyday life, or on telescopes. To detect these particles, the Ice Cube Collaboration has built a large facility in Antarctica. There, they drill long tubes down into the ice, and these tubes have detectors which detect Cherenkov radiation. But wait a second, how will detectors that detect radiation detect neutrinos which don't emit electromagnetic radiation? The key is that in water, the speed of propagation of electromagnetic radiation is less than it is in vacuum. It's about three quarters of the vacuum speed of light. If a neutrino finally hits something and hits a water molecule in the Antarctic ice, then the neutrino's energy will accelerate one of the charged particles in that water molecule. For example, an electron in the molecule. That charged particle will then go shooting off, and if it ends up moving faster than three quarters of the speed of light, it creates a wake in the electromagnetic field. This wake is Cherenkov radiation. Since neutrinos travel very close to the speed of light, they end up giving the particles a lot of energy, meaning the Cherenkov radiation is pretty likely when a neutrino does interact with a water molecule in the Antarctic ice. Great, got ice cube down, got neutrinos down. So what's the deal with this galaxy and why do we care? NGC 1068 is a barred spiral galaxy about 14 megaparsecs away from us. The most interesting part of it is that it has an active galactic nucleus, or AGN. That means when we look at the center of the galaxy, it is really bright across the whole electromagnetic spectrum. And it's also really variable, changing on short timescales. These AGN are often thought to be supermassive black holes. These black holes can produce jets, which shoot material out at relativistic speeds. The particles traveling in those jets can undergo decay and can interact and in those interactions produce neutrinos. Those neutrinos, since they are unlikely to interact with stuff, travel straight out and away from the galaxy. Some of them will not interact with anything all the way until they hit the bottom of the earth where they finally interact with a water molecule that is waiting in the ice cube observatory's big array of Cherenkov detectors. After many years of observation, IceCube determined that about 70 neutrinos they've detected 
came directly from NGC 1068. This is only the second extragalactic neutrino source that we've confidently determined. So that's the big news, and it gives us a look at one of the biggest monsters in the universe, an active galactic nucleus. I hope you all have a stellar week. Thanks for listening to WRT's live local news at 6 on Election Day. The polls close in about an hour at 8 p.m., so if you're in line by 8 p.m., stay in line and you can vote. Follow us tonight on Twitter at Wart News and join us tomorrow at 8 a.m. on the 8 o'clock buzz as we sort through the results and play audio from tonight's events. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. And I'm your host, Emily Morris. Up next is Spanish language news with Anoistro Patio. <laughs> Good night, Wisconsin. W-O-R-T thinks it's...